This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. This episode is brought to you by Carnivore Cure. Carnivore Cure is meat based nutrition, and Carnivore Cure therapeutically uses meat only as the ultimate elimination diet. Carnivore Cure is a book, a food toxin database, and in the future, a root cause healing group program. Carnivore Cure Book helps to break down science and provides a step by step elimination protocol. It also provides nutritional support for a meat based diet. Carnivore Cure may just explain why you don't feel as well eating plant based foods. Carnivore Cure is rooted in evidence based nutrition and with over 600 citations and over 250 colored graphics and tables. If you need assurance that a meat based diet is ideal or if you need more meat based support to guide you, then this book is for you. The colored graphics and information will make the book a resource for years to come. Make sure to grab your paperback, ebook, or audio copy on Amazon or carnivorecure.com. I hope Carnivore Cure helps guide you back to optimal health. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the show. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's- It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole nother thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, get some vitamin D, breathe some fresh air,、uh, and, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Laura Spath, and I am joined by my amazing friend and co host, Judy Cho. Judy, I have so many questions, and I think I've heard the term insulin resistance thrown out quite often. I know it's something that Chris and I both struggled with、uh, and have worked hard to overcome, but truly, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Kind of the, an in depth look behind it. And I think sometimes even I use the term insulin resistance without really being able to pinpoint like what it means and what causes it. And so I wanted to get into that today with you and kind of ask you a bunch of questions about it. Insulin resistance is a huge topic. Dr. Benjamin Bickman wrote a book on why we get sick, and it's all about insulin resistance. I haven't personally read it yet, but his book is doing really well, right? It's because it's、um, top of mind for a lot of people. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But、um, before we talk about kind of the traditional model of what we think of insulin resistance with extra glucose in the body, I wanted to talk a little bit about the new research just so that we're kind of up to speed with everything. So there is some new research that says, or I don't know if it's new, but it's kind of coming more to top of mind for some people. That's saying that metabolic disease and what causes true insulin resistance isn't just solely from sugar. That it can actually be from excess polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs like linoleic acid. So, there is some research that says that maybe PUFAs from canola oils and other inflammatory toxic seed oils may cause additional metabolic disease、um, and even possible insulin resistance. What I'm finding, and even with some interviews I've done, so I did this one interview with a scientist a while ago that focuses on fatty acid profiles. 
um, in cells. And what he said in our interview with his daughter, they're both PhDs, and all they do is really look at the fatty acid profiles of each cell. And so that means like the omega-3, omega-6 composition in cells. And what they found is that for most people, no matter what you're eating, so if you're only mostly eating soybean oils or mostly eating canola oils or processed foods, in general, your cellular health, the balance of the fatty acids will be relatively stable. And then I've seen this to hold true with my clients. So I have clients that literally eat almost no omega-6s. They barely have any foods that have linoleic acid, and they basically eat only beef-only diets for many, many months. And then they get their omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids checked. It's through the blood, and their omega-6 is still on the normal to high range of the normal ranges of the omega-6 profile. And so to me, what that, that interview said held true, right? So even though these people are on a beef-only diet with very, very limited omega-6, Instead, it's just not that much of the needle is moved um, when their diet has changed so much. So let me ask you a question, though. Can I back up and ask a little more basic of a question? So what's the difference between insulin resistance and like diabetes? Is it that the diabetes is caused by the insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes? I guess I should clarify. If you think about insulin resistance, um, Insulin is produced by the pancreas. It's a hormone that's supposed to reduce excess sugar that's in the body. And so it shovels it away and it puts it in storage. And so the thought is that when you have too much sugar in your body, you then are insulin resistant. And this part is debatable. So we don't know if it's that insulin, no matter how much you're getting, is is not really working as much. Or if it's the cells are so full that even though insulin is working as it should, there's just no more space in the cells for the sugar to go. And so what ends up happening is whether it's that the insulin is no longer functioning as well, or that the cells are too full, eventually the sugar gets spilled into the blood or stays in the blood, and then you start becoming diabetic. So I know also too, another sign of insulin resistance is like skin tags. So Chris used to have a bunch of skin tags when he was diabetic and that was one of the signs of it. And so then once he was able to get his blood sugar under control and reverse that, um, then he was able to, those skin tags kind of like fell off or he took them off and all that grossness, but they're very common with that. So I kind of do know that part of it. So if somebody were to reverse their insulin resistance, then that would be them like clearing out all that sugar from their blood or from their liver, um, maybe over time with a low carb diet or with fasting, something to essentially get all of that built up sugar out of their system is my understanding. But what you're saying is there's now this new question is, is it just the sugar that's causing it? Or is it also these polyunsaturated fats and stuff? So where do these PUFAs, where do they come from? What are we eating that's causing it? Because obviously, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you know what sugar is and you know that bread is also sugar and carbs are sugar and fruit is sugar and like all of those things are sugar and too much of that over time can cause it. But I still, what is a, where do you get PUFAs and where's the theory behind that come from? I can't say for sure where the theory comes from, but what I can say is, so when the whole saturated fats is was demonized came out, so then what happened was that food manufacturers started creating oils with other fatty acid profiles. And so instead of saturated fats, they started looking at polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats. And so a lot of these soybean oils, canola oils, a lot of those seed oils are really, really high in polyunsaturated fatty acids. So the original idea of why we shouldn't be eating those oils were that they're inflammatory, that they're already very unstable oils, they're rancid. And by the time you're eating it, they're causing a lot of inflammation in the body because they're rancid, they use glyphosate, they use GMO products. So just the composition of them that it's not a natural oil, all of that is bad. You know, some of this research is also saying that it's actually the composition of the oil. So the polyunsaturated fatty acid of the soybean oil or of the um, canola oil or all those other like vegetable oils, corn oils, um, you know, essentially all those other seed vegetable oils are really toxic also because of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. And they are the ones that additionally cause insulin resistance and that it's not necessarily just the sugar. But for me, as a practitioner working with real clients, 
I don't know if I ever need to do that, right? Because in the real world, linoleic acid or polyunsaturated fatty acids are in everything. So if you were to reduce the seed oils, that's one thing. But technically, it's also in salmon. So some of the fat in fish is from polyunsaturated fatty acids. Some of the chicken skin, some of the pork fat, they also have polyunsaturated fatty acids. And they say that the the pigs and the chickens that eat more grain fed from the GMO crops will then have more of that fat. So they're saying, therefore, if you really want to eat more sugar, you have to limit more of those PUFAs. The reality is that it's really hard to do that, right? So I, th- I mean, think back to, and it's interesting because if you think back to like the 50s, right, they were, or back earlier in, in history, people were eating a lot of carbs back then, but we didn't have the same type of obesity that we have now. And so they were eating, you know, meat and potatoes and vegetables and bread. And then they maybe they baked a pie and they had all those desserts and things. So there were things that they had, but the seed oils didn't exist then. And those came about when they were looking for cheaper ways to create oils and then also preservatives and things that would last a lot longer. And so I know that's where the oils came about. And so it is a question of, is it the sugar that's causing the insulin resistance and the obesity or is it the um, the oils, but I, I mean, in reality, you can't buy something that's a processed food right now that doesn't have some type of oils in it. Exactly. And so if you're trying to cut out that stuff, you know, you can't find Oreos with uh, toxic oils and then Oreos without toxic oils. And so it's, there's not really a way to test that nowadays. Now, can you get away with eating some fruit if you're having zero seed oils in your diet? Maybe, but is eating fruit going to want to cause you to eat Oreos which have the toxic seed oils in them, um, for me, likely, yes. And so then that's an interesting thought of which is causing it. I don't know. Does it matter? Like, I think that's where the research is available now. But I do think personally, people maybe get a little too obsessed with the source of it and not focusing on the the broader picture. Yeah. So that's why I said before, I mean, ultimately, the test is going to be with kids, right? So let's say my kids, I said, starting today, one kid will eat pure sugar, right? Because it's not even, they're not saying only fruits. They're saying pure sugar is fine too, like white sugar, sugar. like cane sugar, like actual real sugar, honey, white sugar, anything that doesn't have polyunsaturated. So orange juice is fine. Um, Cola is fine as long as it's made from real sugar, cane sugar. So then it's like, let's say Caleb only eats one to 300 grams of pure sugar, with meat and other foods, but as long as he's limiting any polyunsaturated fatty acids, they're saying that most likely he will never get insulin resistance. And then our other low carb group is saying, okay, well, as long as you limit the sugar, he will probably never get insulin resistance. And he can have those salmons, the chicken, the conventional raised chicken, the conventionally raised pork, as long as he, so there's definitely one camp that's saying, it's about the oil, the poly poofas, and then there's one can saying it's about the sugars. And so I do think you should test your kids for the next 10 to 15 years and then report <laughs> back to us and let us know how that goes. And we'll have a little uh, nutrition with Judy experiment. Yeah. And so I'm not willing to do that, right? <laughs> Even if there is truth in the poly, and it's not like I want to feed my kids seed oils anyway, right? But right. I'm not, I am going to feed them the salmon though, right? I, if they have, some chicken that's from the grocery store or bacon from the grocery store. I'm not going to be fear mongered from that because of some of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now I will limit some of the carbohydrates for them and they will then be insulin sensitive because of that. And, and it's proven with decades and decades of research that even if sugar is not the core of insulin resistance, it is still a low carb diet is still efficacious in having optimal health. And knowing that, I will choose the nutrient-dense meats and letting my kids live a little with going to a birthday party where there's a little bit of poofas in those cakes. But I am not going to do the risk of doing no poofas, but hey, you can eat all the sugar or a lot of sugar five times a day, and that'll give your cellular metabolic health, you know, optimal health. And I'm just not going to do that with my children. And, and then 
if we're not talking about children, well, most people have metabolic disease. And at this point, who cares where the disease came from, right? Now, some people are saying, well, you can reverse it. I mean, am I really going to have my mom go eat 300 grams of sugar and say, mom, just take some vitamin E to reduce some of those seed oils that are in your cells. And mom, just remove all the poofas, just eat your beef, but have a ton of sugar. And I promise you, your diabetes will no longer exist. I'm not going to take that risk with her, right? Because she had diabetes and I'm not going to take the risk that, hey, as long as you reduce your poofas, then over the years, you'll be okay. I think that's the hard part for me is when I heard and where I, you know, had to start looking at it more and where maybe I wasn't as open-minded as I should have been and kind of shut down the the thought process was when I heard that I can't eat like traditional um, meat from the grocery store. And you know, you know how I feel about like conventional grocery store meat. And we had that rancher on to talk about how that's, you know, you're supporting local farms if you're eating conventional beef, but if you can't eat normal chicken from a grocery store or pork is going to be toxic for you. Like I just know based on my own personal life, that is not what caused me to be morbidly obese. It wasn't the fact that I was eating regular chicken wings. It was the fact that I was eating pints of Ben and Jerry's. And so, you know, trying to convince me who had been through that and lived through that lifestyle that I could still have sugar, but not have traditional chicken and had to buy organic farm raised pork, but still eat sugar. Like I just had a hard time grasping that. And so I'm not, I agree with you. I don't think that what they're saying is invalid at all. I just think it's not realistic for the majority of people. I also think that, I mean, what you said is so great of it doesn't, now you have the disease, like now you're there. It doesn't matter how you got it. It would be nice so I know not to give it to my kids in that same way, which is why we do try to limit seed oils from what they're doing. But I also am not going to take that risk of I'm not going to give them a bunch of sugar either um, because I do know personally that that was my problem. Like that's the part that's addicting for me. That's the part that uh, I can't moderate. It's the drug for me is the sugar. And I think people view like is – I mean, I think it's just like a drug. If you have somebody who's a drug addict, we have to cut out the drugs. And then also smoking is bad, but also heroin is bad. And so we need somebody to be able to stop doing heroin first. And then let's focus on cutting out the smoking or something else that's bad. Like they can both be bad, but one can be worse and needs to be eliminated completely while the other one needs to be, you know, is something you can worry about later. That was probably a terrible analogy, but y'all know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, seed oils are bad for so many reasons, right? Not only are they fine, let's say the linoleic acid, polyunsaturated fatty acids, that's just cherry on the top, but really they're bad for so many reasons. I mean, canola oil is made from a toxic plant. If you ate that plant, you would get really sick and maybe even die. It's, but they made that plant an oil because. They needed to find a different oil that's a substitute for saturated fats. And so canola oil was cheap. It was plentiful in Canada. And then they made it a seed oil and they bleach it. They cook it seven different times before it even gets into a bottle. And so the likelihood of it, of, of it being rancid is super high. We can't taste the rancidity or even smell it because they bleach it multiple times. So, and then on top of that, it's genetically modified. So then they're using glyphosate, which is toxic to our gut health. And I talk about a lot of this stuff in Carnivore Cure. And for all of these reasons, we shouldn't be eating a lot of the seed oils. But I also know that we live in real life and it is nearly impossible to go to a restaurant or to eat anything from the grocery store or go to a birthday party and not ever touch a poofa. And so for that reason, I know I have to marry real life, right? If my clients or my kids want to eat out, I'm pretty sure that the oil they use at that restaurant will often be, and a lot of them will use canola oil thinking it's healthy because the World Health Organization recommends canola oil. That is one of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. So I know that it is unrealistic to tell people you should never eat that. Now, the salmon amounts, the chicken, the pork, it's so little compared to seed oils and the amount that we would be consuming from seed oil. So yes, take those seed oils away as much as possible, but it is unrealistic to think that someone will never touch it again. It's 
It's in every part of our diet. Let me say, focus on what you can control and what you can't control. Don't cook with it at home. Don't be frying your meat in it. Don't fry your chicken wings in it. Use things like an air fryer, marinate things in bacon grease. Even using some high quality olive oils is going to be better than using any kind of canola oil or corn oil uh, and things like that. So focus on what you can control, like what's in your house. You know, and then if you are at a restaurant and the only option that you have to eat that day is some wings that may be fried in some kind of oil, it's not ideal. Like that's an, a rare occasion, but it's not going to be something that you do uh, on a daily basis. And so that's kind of, I think, a way to that we would recommend trying to balance that. Yeah. And even eating meat heavy or meat only or meat based is um, it reduces a lot of the polyunsaturated fatty acids anyway. I mean, when we order a hamburger from McDonald's or from Burger King, the breads have seed oils in them. So if we reduce the bread itself, because the combination of the sugars with these polyunsaturated fatty acids is disastrous. And so if you're already removing a lot of the breads and other things, then it becomes a lot better anyway. Um, One thing that someone was saying on, um, we were talking about how Tim Noakes, he was a marathon or like a super athlete. And he ate a lot of grains and healthy carbs, um, but he still became diabetic. And someone's answer was, well, it's because he didn't remove the PUFAs. It's just nearly impossible to do, right? Like even Tim Noakes, who was probably eating some healthy grains. um, Yes, he probably had some fish and um, maybe there was a little bit of seed oils in his diet. I don't know. But they said that the reason he got diabetes was because it was the grains with the seed oils. And it's just you're never going to prove that, right? It's just, it's not a experiment I'm willing to try. Um, And one thing I just wanted to say when I was talking about how the cellular health shows that the fatty acids are still the same relative to whatever diet you're eating. That's not saying to just then eat PUFAs because, hey, your cells will balance each other out. I think eventually your cells will get sick enough that the the fatty acid profiles will break. So I think eventually, if all you're eating is soybean oils and and canola oils, that eventually your omega-6s will be really high. And that's a point where there is disease and that you may get in trouble. But there, when you are healthy enough, your cells will just naturally protect themselves and will balance themselves out. So yes, remove the toxic seed oils as much as you can. Don't have it in your house. Um, but I think in general, having some chicken fat and pork fat and even from the groceries is not that bad, especially if you're eating a meat-based diet. I think that's where too, sometimes we focus so much on optimizing and having being perfect. And if you are somebody who's relatively healthy or in a really fit, healthy person to begin with, and you're just trying to dial things in and you're trying to tweak things, those are definitely things that you can tweak and levers that you can pull and things that are factual, but um, how important they are to the bigger picture is still unknown. And I think those are things that you can play around with if you're trying to optimize. If you are starting out and you are obese and you are trying to lose a tremendous amount of weight, or if you are trying to fix a very large problem in your health, or you're trying to radically change your diet to go from eating a standard diet or tons of processed foods, and you're trying to go, then then worrying about PUFAs for me would have been too overwhelming. And I just would have given up and gone back to eating junk. And I say that often because it's so true. Like, if I knew I had to make this huge leap, I don't think I could have done that. But I was able to go bit by bit where I went from eating regular tortillas to low carb tortillas. And then I swapped those out for lettuce wrapped stuff. And then I swapped that out for cheese wrapped stuff. And now I just eat meat plain. And so that progression really helped me to be able to get to a point where I could be healthier, to reverse my own insulin resistance, to reverse my own prediabetes. Um, and get myself to a healthier place. But if I thought I had to not be able to buy chicken from the grocery store, I could never eat out again. I could never um, travel. I could never um, eat traditional bacon. I don't, I never would have done all this stuff to begin with. And there's a lot of times where it's just easier to stay fat. And I probably would have done that. I'm losing weight is hard enough. And sometimes I think if we're looking for perfection or, If we are, I don't even, perfection is not even the right word for it. If we're just looking to get that detailed um, about things, I think in the very beginning, especially, it can really discourage people. 
Absolutely. And I, and I'm on the same page and that's where I think when you say, how do you start going low carb? The easiest thing to say is to cut a lot of the carbohydrates. And even that is hard for people. They don't even understand, well, what's a carbohydrate is a potato carbohydrate or is a rice, right? Versus sugar. So it's knowing again where the person is and trying to see what is realistic, right? Because if you shoot for the moon, you're not going to really get anywhere. Um, so hang on, I was traveling, I was traveling a couple weeks ago, and I had like a business lunch, and they were telling me about this deli that we were at, and the bread was really good. And um, I was like, Oh, that's great. You know, like somehow, I don't know, I try not to bring it up around strangers. But I was like, oh, I don't really eat carbs. And she's like, Oh, interesting. And I'm, and was asking me questions. And I said something about how you just eat meat. And she was like, oh, yeah, like to like meat and rice and stuff. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> like I already said I'm zero carb and I only eat meat. And then she had Im- implied like, so you eat what meat and rice? I'm like, no, 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 that's a carb. <laughs> so it's so sweet. But like, you're right. Like there's just people that just genuinely don't know. And that's yeah. okay. Like we all had to start somewhere with this and figuring that out. But you know, it's... Uh, My husband's best friend just had heart surgery. Um, I think he had to get a stint in and he's only 39. And he said, I'm starting a keto diet because my husband said, cut the seed oils and go low carb. That was his overall simple recommendations. And he goes, yeah, I'm doing keto now. And so he eats a ton of rice. And again, it's just, it's not ideal, but my husband's like, look, as long as he's cutting out the sugar right now, I'm okay with that. And as long as he's reducing some seed oils, um, even if he doesn't understand what really a ketogenic diet is, this is still good steps towards better health. And that's just where to begin versus if he gave like a hundred rules, he's going to say, I can't even follow right. this. I don't even understand. Well, let him, let him fix those things. And when he's comfortable with that, then say, yeah. Hey, let's reduce your rice a little bit. Let's skip right. a day. Let's cut it down. And like, get people there. But you're so right. He can't give him all of these rules at once. He just needs to get him to do some baby steps. Yeah. That's the thing that, you know, it's really hard is that when people don't work with people, they don't see a lot of the illness. I just got contacted by a colleague of mine that wanted me to work with her friend. And I said, I'm not taking anyone new, but her friend was just diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer, and she's 26 and she has three kids and she's like, I want to get her on a carnivore diet. And, uh, and I was just like, just get her on just simple basics, right? Um, and it's it's just when someone's that sick, you're not going to try to hit perfection because they have a lot already on their plate. Can you imagine being 26 with yeah. breast cancer with mm-hmm. three kids? I mean, my heart just went out to her. And it wasn't like, well, I better make sure to tell her to get rid of the poofas and make sure to do this and eat this macro and that kind of meat. It's that That's too much. With all that said... Um, let's just talk about insulin resistance in the aspect with excess sugar, because in the real world, it is really hard to separate sugar and PUFAs when it comes to just real world foods. And so when I'm, um, I'm just going to talk about insulin resistance when it comes to sugars. And oftentimes these sugary foods include PUFAs like in donuts and cakes and Um, processed foods and pretty much everything we eat has both. And I'm not going to talk about one oil in isolation because in the real world, it doesn't really work that way. And I get it in the science, it probably does, but this is real life and real solutions for people. So given all that, um, I mean, like we talked about, so the pancreas creates insulin to help break down any excess sugar that comes into our system when we are eating too much sugar. One thing is that when people are insulin resistant and then they start eating a meat-based diet and all of a sudden they don't have good digestion, it might be because their pancreas was um, producing a lot of that insulin and now they need to also produce the digestive enzymes that need to break down our meats, our proteins, our fats, and now it just is still healing and so it can't produce it. For people that have high insulin resistance, that's where digestive enzymes may make sense in the beginning while the pancreas is healing. Just logically, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Insulin, really what it does is it helps blood sugar to not go over the 100 milligram over deciliters or 5.5 millimolar over liters um, because anything above that is considered prediabetes and then diabetes. Okay, so hang on. That's where you lost me. So when you're looking at that, for somebody who doesn't know what those things are, like how can you explain that a little bit more simply or what do I need to be looking out for in terms of that? So if you were to wake up in the mornings and you checked your blood sugar with the blood glucose monitor, and again, this only checks glucose, it doesn't check fructose. And I know fructose can can get converted and 
you know, there's all these nuances of different right. sugars in the body, but let's just keep it simple and talk about glucose. Right. So when you check your blood sugar in the mornings, if you are in a healthy range, it should be around 80 milligrams over deciliters. So when you prick your fingers, it should be around 80 ish. Um, if you're eating carnivore, it might even go up to 90 ish. That's fine. Um, anything above 100 milligrams per deciliter or in the European and any other country, it's like five, it's based on milliliters. And so that's 5.5. But when it starts trending upward, there's a, that just means that there's more glucose in your blood. So if you wake up first thing in the morning and your sugar is at like 120, but you're eating a carnivore diet, I think from my understanding, it could be several things. It could be you ate too late, right? Just simply too late at night. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. So then you also could have eaten too much uh, protein or just too much that again, where your body hasn't been able to burn off a lot of that sugar um, before you went to bed. Or you also could just still be working on, especially if you're newer to this diet, burning out that sugar that's already in your blood, in your body, in your liver, in your pancreas, like your body still is working on burning a lot of that stuff out. So it could be about nothing that you ate, it could just really be about all that excess that's currently in your system or stress. That's number four, right? Stress. Yeah. So all, all of that is true. Now, that's why this stuff is really kind of complicated because it depends on the situation, right? So Laura, if you two years in your blood sugar is 120 in the morning eating carnivore, I would not be okay with those numbers, right? right. If you were 120 and you were diabetic and you're one month into carnivore, and that is a good number to see in the morning compared to before when you were on metformin and you had diabetes, then I would be happy with the 120 number. Yeah. That's where it's very, very bio individual. And yes, if you are excessively working out, if you are under eating, if you are um, highly stressed, you are eating way too much protein than your body needs, then all of those things can cause your blood sugar to be higher in the mornings on a carnivorous or a meat-based ketogenic diet. But in terms of just insulin resistance, I guess on a standard American diet, I guess that's what I'm really referring to is we want to lower carbs so that we can just lower our overall um, sugar load in the body that will impact then insulin's job to then put all of the excess sugar into our cells. And when we just kind of stop doing that, insulin doesn't have to work as much to put all the excess sugar into cells. Um, And then if we have insulin resistance, it could lower that level of insulin resistance and we can eventually become insulin sensitive, meaning that when we have any bit of sugar, our insulin will act up quickly. So that's where we want to be because when we are insulin resistant, we will gain weight easily. We will have low energy. We have more metabolic disease. We have more inflammation, uh, chronic inflammation. And so all of these things will lead to bad health. And so the overarching goal is that we have less insulin resistance. And one effective way, regardless of how it started, is by lowering our sugar load because then when we lo- lower our sugar load, I mean, we make our pancreas um, need to produce less insulin. And then there's just a less of a load on our body. And I just wanted to bring one um, point home in terms of the blood sugar and how tightly it's regulated. So I said that a normal blood sugar in the mornings is deemed as 80 milligrams. And that may be a little low for carnivores, but in the standard American diet, 80 milligrams in the morning is considered good or 4.4 millimoliters. And that is considered good if you wake up, you had nothing to eat yet, and you just had a normal diet of um, even carbohydrates at night. And then if it's closer to 100, that means you're closer to being diabetic. And then if you're 120 in the mornings, that means you're diabetic. Those are kind of the parameters. The difference between 80 milligrams per deciliter, which is considered normal, and 120 milligrams per deciliter in the mornings, which is normal versus diabetic, is only a quarter teaspoon of sugar in your blood. That's all it is. That's how little amount of sugar is different now that your insulin didn't shovel out of your blood to now deem you as diabetic. That's how much sugar, that little amount 
can cause havoc now in your eyes and cause you to have eyesight issues, cause you to have like leg issues and amputate your legs eventually with diabetes, right? So, well, not even and cause you to not be able to fight off infections or viruses or cause you to not be able for your body not to be able to kind of regulate its own health. Yes, exactly. And, and I'll talk about a few of those things. So I know some of the arguments is that, but our body needs glucose, right? So it's true, there are parts of our body that needs glucose, the brain needs a little bit of glucose, the eyes, um, kidneys, and other parts of the body need a little bit of glucose. But our bodies can convert proteins into using glucose, right? Um, We have ways that we can produce that glucose. I mean, our bodies are only able to store maybe 2000 calories worth of glucose in the body, but it is able to store tens of thousands of um, calories of fat. It's not a ideal source of fuel for the body. I think fat is a better option. But again, this is something that's getting debated these days. But regardless, lowering your sugar will absolutely lower your risk of metabolic disease and inflammation. Here are some just general facts of what is negative about consuming too much sugar. One thing like Laura just alluded to is that it will lower your immune system. One reason is that if you eat a lot of sugar, we all know this as carnivores, that vitamin C um, competes with glucose receptors. And so one thought is that the reason why as carnivores we need less vitamin C is that we have less glucose competing. So then the amount of vitamin C we do get is enough that we can survive off it. Well, the thing is that if we are eating a lot of sugar and we're not eating all this excess vitamin C, then now our bodies have to compete with shoveling the sugar away and not getting enough vitamin C. Well, vitamin C is what helps to produce white blood cells to protect us from viruses. So as you eat more refined sugar, it also reduces how your white blood cells will perform. So therefore, like you were saying, it affects your immune system, right? So if you eat more sugar, your immune health will be less ideal. And the thing is also that white blood cells are mostly in your gut, which um, 80% of your immune system is in your gut. And there are you know, lots of studies where it shows that maybe excess sugar or excess grains can cause inflammation in the gut and feed the nasty yeasty beasties, right? There's all of these things. And wait, what's the nasty yeasty beasties? So you, you know um, how people get candida and how people get excess yeast overgrowth. It's from sugars. It's different types and forms of sugars. Now you have to get tested for what kind of sugars, but all of those diets recommend you remove certain very sugar rich fruits and carbohydrates because they these nasty yeasty beasties um <laughs> i mean literally they grow from yeast from carbohydrates well that's true because before i went keto or low carb i would have regular yeast infections like i like several times a year uh, i'd have that's you know fyi now we know um but <laughs> now i'm good uh definitely don't have that issue anymore so that's True. Hey, you said something about vitamin C though. So that's one of those things I think people get hung up on is the fact that when you're eating all meat, there's not as much vitamin C, but based on what you're saying, a lot of that is because it has to move the sugar around your body. And so when you are carnivore, then you need less vitamin C than you do if you're also eating sugar as well. Yes. um, Yes to that question. Um, But I think we don't really know how much vitamin C we really need. So um, one of the things I argued in Carnivore Cure is that in the last every 20 years or so, um, they've doubled the amount of vitamin C we need. And I wonder if it's because we're also consuming more sugar. So it's a fact that one form of vitamin C competes with the same glucose receptor to get absorbed into the body. So are we eating too much sugar that then is causing less of the vitamin C to get absorbed? And so that's one. But then if we were to also think about the sailors that were on that ship that got scurvy, all of them ate the same foods and only half of them got scurvy. And so we have to wonder, maybe it's something to do with genetics, right? Maybe there are some people that just do better with less vitamin C and it's not just that we all need this certain amount of vitamin C. Another thought I brought up in the book is that we think of breast milk as the um, perfect ideal food, right? It has all the amino acids and that's how we have created the perfect amino acid ratio we need for um, adults is based on the breast milk composition. 
Well, breast milk has very little vitamin C. And so these are just thoughts of, do we really need that much vitamin C? We don't really know yet. We know that most carnivores do well without vitamin C or a ton of it. If you're worried, you can always use some lemon and lime. You can even take a vitamin C supplement if you wish. But there's also the risk of that excess vitamin C can produce oxalates in the body. And I also talk about that in Carnivore Cure. So these are a lot of things we don't know. What we do know is a fact is that if you eat a lot of sugar, it will compete with the vitamin C. And so maybe that's why the vitamin C amounts, the daily recommended value has increased every decade because maybe our sugar consumption has also gone up with it. Hmm, That makes a lot of sense. Um, So I want to circle back to something else. You talked about protein turning to glucose and how our bodies need glucose and part of our brains do. But whenever I, and that's obviously gluconeogenesis, whenever I hear somebody who's not in the low carb plant uh, carnivore world talking about gluconeogenesis, they talk about it like it's this toxic process and it's actually dangerous, but what, like, how does that, obviously it's your body is converting over what it needs, but why is it talked about? Like it's some sort of dangerous thing by people who are not in this space. The ultimate thing that people are against gluconeogenesis. And it's not real. I don't know why people only use the word gluconeogenesis because it's a lot of different processes, but like there's lipolysis, which helps fatty acids break down to glycerol and all these other things. But, and I might even be saying that the wrong way, but essentially they're saying that that process is very taxing to the body. And it's also not a, not an effective way to get glucose. So it's not that ideal. That's the whole thought about it is that You could just have some simple glucose and you can kind of take care of that. Why use a very inefficient way um, to make proteins turn into sugar so that your bodies can use it. And in, in, in essence, it's a tax within the body. And so that's where kind of that negative stigma comes from. Because again, the thought is, why don't you just eat some glucose, right? Um, If it was that simple where people can just eat a little bit of glucose, I don't think a carnivore diet would really exist, right? Like, let's be really honest. If people could eat mostly meat and then have a fruit a day and then just limit it to that and take care of the amounts, the load of glucose they may need from an external source instead of internally, I don't know if carnivore would exist because I think people could just uh, manage the amount of sugar they consume and handle it, right? But I also think I also think there's a lot of benefits that can come from just being in fat burning mode in general. And if you are having a little say you are somebody who can regulate fruit and you can have a little bit of fruit every day. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's going to keep you out of ketosis. So it's going to inhibit the fat burning that you're having. So you're not going to lose weight as much um, because you're not going to burn a lot of excess fat on your body because your body's burning the sugar that you're consuming. And then I think you're missing out on some energy energy. improvements that can happen, you know, those sugar dips and spikes, you're, you're missing out on that stable blood sugar. And also just overall, there's so much healing that can happen. I mean, that's how the keto diet started in the first place was it was created for a healing purposes. Um, and so I think even though you're right, there are, there is this tax that's happening on your body and it's adding a little bit of stress. There's so many more benefits that are happening that it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, your body in some ways has to you have, it's like exercising. You're, I mean, you have to exercise a little bit, your muscles get sore, but it's because you're growing and you're healing and it ends up being a good thing for your body. So I don't, maybe I'm um, extrapolating there a little bit too much, but it's, it's interesting. Our bodies have many different mechanisms and I don't remember every single word because it's been a while, but there's like glycolysis, glyconeogenesis, um, gluconeogenesis. And basically all these things are doing is saying that You get sugar, the liver converts it to glycogen and stores the sugar for you to use later and then in your muscles, in your liver. Then there's ways that you will, your liver will then um, store that glycogen or grab that glycogen, convert it, and then use it um, for sugars for energy. And then there's ones for fatty acids, there's ones for protein, there's ones for um, glucose. And so there's all these different mechanisms and your body is not like it's just does one thing at uh, at one point in time, it uses all these different levers when it needs it in the body. And the goal would be that your body is metabolically flexible, meaning that if it can, if it can use ketones, it will, when you're, um, when you're exercising, it'll use some of the stored sugars in your body, because when you eat meat, you will have stored sugars in your body. And 
And this is a thing where people just break down, oh, I know the word gluconeogenesis, so I'm going to keep spitting it out. Well, there's also glycogen. I forgot the word. It's like glyconejol. Okay, I'm not even saying it. It's uh, Just say it with confidence, Judy. None of us know it either. So if you just say it confidently, like we'll believe you, okay? <laughs> but there's like lipolysis where fatty acids are um, severed from the sugar. So then they're also stored. And it's just crazy that we only focus on one chemical aspect but we have different ways our body stores energy and there's like literally like eight different terminologies i'll put it in the notes it's like six different g words that's what i remember and and the point is that our bodies are metabolically going to be more flexible and handle whichever lever it needs for that energy at that given time and so when people are worried that oh i'm either burning ketones or i'm burning sugar It's not that simple. Our body uses all of it at different given times. I mean, when I say that our brain is 60% fat, do you think that when we're eating just glucose, our bodies are never using fatty acids? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe we're not producing necessarily ketones, but we are definitely still using some of the fat. So that's where we have to just understand that there's a lot that goes on in the body and we're almost simplifying the body to a degree that it's not giving service to the body and all the powers that it does. Okay, so I just wanted to bring up a few other things about sugar. Um, One other thing about sugar, which I thought was really interesting is that when you are eating a high uh, sugar diet, and your blood sugar is kind of high, you use you tend to use up more of your magnesium, and you will excrete more of your magnesium faster. So for every 28 molecules of magnesium, you um, it requires that much to metabolize one molecule of sucrose, which is table sugar. And it takes 56 molecules to metabolize one molecule of fructose. So if you are wondering, then if you are magnesium deficient, it might be your amount of sugar you're consuming, right? And depending on if you're eating fructose, which again, is in lots of your fruit or the high fructose corn syrup, then you're going to be using up a lot more of your magnesium. And when your blood sugar, and this is my biggest concern about eating a lot of sugar, is that when you are eating a lot of sugar, your blood sugar, as we're talking about, you'll become more insulin resistant, and then eventually you'll become more diabetic or pre-diabetic. And then you're going to have to have your endocrine system have cortisol balance your blood sugars more. And when you produce more cortisol, then you start using a lot more of your nutrients, your raw materials, to produce cortisol when it could be using it for other things. So cortisol uses up vitamin C, cortisol um, uses up B vitamins, it uses up salt, it uses up minerals. And then that's where a lot of inflammation also occurs. So you can see why balancing blood sugar is so important. And maybe even if it's considered a band-aid, lowering foods that have high sugar amounts seems to be ideal to I guess, um, help all of this insulin resistance and high blood sugar levels. But that's where it's it's hard to say and hard to pinpoint down. Like everything you're saying, and you're right, it's all so complicated. And so to then point at PUFAs and say like that is causing the insulin resistance, there's also no way to separate like we've been talking about PUFAs from sugar in today's world, in, right. in reality, everything is so combined. All these foods are highly processed. You almost cut them out entirely at the same time just by cutting out anything that's processed. And the only place that you don't is in some of those meats and whole foods, um, which is why I think it's so important just to cut out everything that's processed first eat whole foods. A lot of people do extremely well just by eating a whole foods diet and they can incorporate carbs and sweet potatoes and things like that. As long as they're not eating anything that's processed, um, the majority of those, you know, seed oils and all those terrible ingredients are cut out just by eating single ingredient foods, you know, a potato, a apple, a steak, an egg, like those things work for a lot of people. Um, if you're, especially if you're not already insulin resistant, if you're just trying to lead a healthy life, you're already a healthy person that can be a great diet for a lot of people, uh, and not necessarily getting as granular into worrying about the poofas in chicken. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I've done several fatty acid profiles now where people just prick their finger send in their blood, it's like a drop or two, and it shows their fatty acid profiles and their linoleic acid, which is the argument for the anti-chicken and anti-pork and even salmon and other fish. Um, People eat beef-only diets. I mean, we know many, many people that eat beef-only and their linoleic acid is still moderate to moderately high in the normal range. 
And based on these people's arguments, it would lower and it doesn't. And so this is where I think the body has smart ways to manage until there's a point of disease. But in general, the body will manage the fatty acids because it was naturally designed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one other in, um, nutrient that I forgot to mention is chromium. So if you look at a lot of blood sugar balancing uh, vitamins, they always say take a lot of chromium because it'll help bl- um, blood sugar balance. The reason is, is because when you eat a high sugar diet, it steals a lot of your chromium. And so instead, we just band-aid it by saying, we'll take more chromium. Well, what if we just use less chromium instead, just reduce the sugars? It's just these things that we never think about. Because is that a, So is chromium a supplement or is that in a specific food? Or like, how do you get that in the first place? So chromium is a trace element. And um, you could get it tested in your hair mineral test. Um, But I don't know what foods it's in. I think it's in most meats and stuff. But in general, um, when you are eating a high sugar diet, you will deplete yourself. I think it's like 300 times. I can't remember the exact number. But when you have a high blood sugar number and you eat a lot of sugar, in general, you deplete yourself of a lot of chromium. And so obviously, they don't explain that in these supplements. They just say, For blood sugar regulation, if you look at any of those supplements, their chromium marker or the chromium nutrient is really high. And it's because they know that when you eat a lot of sugar, your chromium will be depleted. If you eat meats and stuff, you don't have to worry about it. There is chromium in um, meats, but it's a trace element. You need very little of it. But if you eat high sugar, you will deplete yourself of a lot of the chromium in your body. I mean, that's so interesting about how there's, you know, like things like vitamin C and chromium and all these things that like your body is almost learning to adapt or you need more of because you are adding so much sugar into it. And that sugar is just so uh, hard on your body or it's, you know, it can make you so sick. It can cause you to not be able to fight off infections and, and your body is doing so many things to try to regulate that and to try to keep that sugar from your body doesn't want to be diseased. And so it's adapting. And over the years, we've adapted now our guidelines and we've adapted what we talk about and the supplements that you're supposed to take. And I feel like our entire healthcare system is now skewed into like treating unhealthy people when in reality, your body wants to be healthy in the first place. And so, you know, it's, it's adjusting, but the average person is not healthy. And so when we look at our recommended daily allowances, it's almost like those are geared towards unhealthy people in the first place because the average person is not healthy and your body is just trying to get itself there. Like I just had a light bulb moment here, Judy. No, no, that's exactly it. So that's what I wrote about in carnivore care about vitamin C. So I don't quote me on it guys. Look, <laughs> look at my book. I don't remember the numbers because I work with so many numbers, but Nowadays, the recommended amount for vitamin C for healthy males is about 70 or 80. Just like 20, 30 years ago, it was at 35 or 40. And it's like, what? why? What? Why is it now double? And then even 20 years from that, it was maybe half of that. So we have to wonder why. And it's like what you're saying. Is it because we're just basing it on the illnesses we have? What if instead of adding chromium, adding more vitamin C, adding more B vitamins and salt, what if we just reduced the sugar, right? The sugar that if you think about from someone that is a normal blood sugar person and that someone's diabetic, it's a quarter teaspoon of sugar. Most of us, when we're drinking coffee, we add like a teaspoon of sugar. So imagine if we're constantly fueling our body with sugar into our bloodstream five times a day with that much excess sugar when a quarter teaspoon is all the difference of someone that is a normal blood sugar level person and someone that's diabetic. It's just a quarter teaspoon. That's crazy. I just, that's that. This has just been a huge light bulb moment for me of, right? Like I think my mom takes so many vitamins and so many supplements because she needed them all. And that's been the one thing it's been hard for me, even though she's healthier and she's low carb and she does mostly carnivore. Like it's hard for me to convince her that she doesn't need those things because they really were needed for her beforehand. And so really in reality, it's, it's not about, continuing in all these supplements because her body's so deficient in something. Once she cuts out a lot of that sugar, she doesn't really need a lot of those supplements anymore because those supplements were to heal her from eating too much sugar. It's like, boom, I wish I had the head head explosion emoji right now uh, because this has been, that's crazy. 
Yeah. So my parents, same thing, right? My mom was diabetic. My dad was like borderline diabetic and he had high cholesterol. So they used to take boatloads of supplements. And then I got them on the digestive enzymes. My dad doesn't have a gallbladder. So I had him on digestive enzymes, ox bile, and then they had the HCL and all that other stuff. And nowadays, maybe they take like a B vitamin because B vitamins are used with cortisol, right? So with their stress load and that stuff. So sometimes they take a little bit of B vitamins and then sometimes they take a fish oil if they need it. But in general, they have very few and they'll even ask me, are you sure this is enough vitamins? Because even for them, they're right. not used to taking so little. And I'm like, yeah, just we'll take a probiotic once a year, but you're good. And, and they are good. Their health has been improving over and over, but it's because they have been trained again. And remember, the supplement companies are a multi-billion dollar industry too. And that's why I always tell people, guys, this is temporary. Supplements are temporary as you heal and as you don't need them, you let go of those crutches over time. But you need proper digestion to ensure that you're getting the nutrients from your meats and also not as stressed because remember, cortisol uses a lot of raw materials. Well, we know too, vitamins are not really bioavailable. Like your body's not really absorbing everything that's in like a multivitamin. And so, you know, like I get asked by people who don't do meat-based diets, like, well, what vitamins do you take? Because your food's not giving you all the vitamins you need. I'm like, no, no, it is. Like beef is the most nutrient-dense bioavailable food that you can have. That's why you poop so much when you're eating vegetables and fiber and stuff because your body can't absorb all of that food. And so you have a lot of waste. And that's why people get watery poop in the beginning with um, when they're eating all meat because their body is absorbing all of that great nutrients. And then it's just releasing all the excess water um, that, that it's not digesting. And so I think it's, you know, reevaluate what, if you are taking a lot of supplements and vitamins, like those should be temporary things. I took certain vitamins when I was pregnant because you needed extra folate and things like that. But, but if, you shouldn't need to be taking some sort of supplement or vitamin forever. Um, like you always talk about, these should be things that are healing you, temporary, um, addressing a specific issue. And the goal of that would be then to eventually have all of your nutrients coming from food and not things that you're needing to um, fix and heal in the short term. Yes. The only caveat I'll say is, let's say you got your digestive um, function working well, and now you're absorbing the iron, the the zinc and everything from your meats. I fully agree with that. The only caveat I have now being in practice, because before I used to believe that fully and wholly, um, is the minerals. So I think our soils are depleted enough that we may need a little bit more magnesium and potassium and some of those minerals. But overall, yes, you should not be getting your nutrients from supplements unless you are deficient because you are not handling other things in your life. And for some of my clients, that is the stress. Yeah. And so like taking some good quality electrolytes of sodium, potassium, magnesium uh, is likely necessary. Your body is also not retaining water um, because it's not eating a lot of carbs. And so you're flushing out all those natural electrolytes. So you likely do need to supplement a little extra, especially if you're sweating, if you're somebody who's active or does any type of exercise, if you're a lot more lazy like me and you salt your food very heavily, you probably don't need uh, a lot of extra electrolytes during the day, but it really just depends on your uh, activity and your lifestyle. Yeah, I don't really use electrolytes. Um, I'll only use sole water if I'm doing an iodine protocol, but otherwise I won't use it. Um, or if I'm doing extended fasting, which I haven't done in a while. Um, or if I've been in the sauna for a while and I know that I sweat way more than normal, that's not normal for my body. So my body will remove some more minerals and electrolytes than it normally does. And that's when I'll add some of the sole water. Maybe I'll do an electrolyte mix. But otherwise, I mean, four years in, I my body is pretty used to just eating this way. And so just heavy salt does fine for me. And um, and so you just have to find that balance um, and but get yourself to there. I don't think you, we need to take supplements for the rest of our life. I think same thing. I don't really do any type of electrolyte supplements, even on a daily basis, because my body's pretty used to this. After you know three years, I do uh, maybe some electrolytes if I'm fasting longer than 48 hours. And then stress, I think I definitely can tell I'll get like some leg cramps at night from stress. When we had COVID, uh, I was getting pretty bad restless leg syndrome and some cramping at night. And so I was doing the magnesium spray and extra like tons and tons of magnesium. 
to try to help with that. Um, but again, that's really just because my body was trying to fight something off and needed a little bit of replenishment. So uh, it shouldn't be something that you need to take every single day, even from an electrolyte standpoint. And that's where I think the irony of these cold medications are, by the way, just tangent, is that they add sugar to these cold remedies, mm-hmm. right? the syrups that you drink. But then when you have a virus, if you want your immune system to be the strongest, the last thing you want to really be consuming is sugar. Well, that's it, the pharmaceutical industry wanting you to get better <laughs> eventually, but you also need to be able to buy their products first. And so maybe this is that like deep, dark behind the scenes plot that we'll talk about next week. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to talk about a few signs of insulin resistance and then also what we can do to make ourselves more insulin sensitive. So, um, I mean, Laura, you brought up that for some signs of insulin resistance are obviously those skin tags. So do you want to briefly just talk about what a skin tag is? So usually a lot of times it's on your neck, on your armpits, um, kind of in the crevices of those places. But it's just that little piece of skin that's just kind of hanging out there. And it looks like a mole, but it's white and it's not going to be brown like a mole. And it usually grows outward, um, really nice and pleasant sounding. And so you can have them removed, but you really it's just excess skin that kind of grows out and usually gets a little bulby. Sometimes you can pull it off or you might need to have a doctor remove it. Yeah. And then other signs of insulin resistance is dark underarm patches. So like it can look like you have a shadow in your armpit, but it's actually just dark. And that's a sign of that too. Um, I forgot the sciencey word of it, but doesn't matter. Um, weight gain, low energy, you know, all of the blood sugar dysregulation symptoms. So having hormone thyroid issues, metabolic disease, all of those can be related. And then you can get the tests like you can get an insulin test. They're not always super accurate. Um, you can get the C-peptide, which is an enzyme they will test to see how how your pancreas is doing with that enzyme. Um, and oftentimes, if it's really low, they think you're type one diabetic because your insulin isn't working enough, but it just might mean that you're super insulin sensitive. So that's That's a really good test also to take. Things that make us more insulin sensitive, obviously our whole conversation today has been about lowering sugar, right? So whether or not it is the culprit of um, giving us metabolic disease today, whether it's just pure sugar or not, it doesn't really matter if you're already sick. One way to effectively lower insulin resistance and your blood sugar levels is just reducing the sugars. Another one is lowering inflammation overall. So as you reduce uh, sugary foods, processed foods, foods with seed oils, um, you can check your CRP, your C-reactive protein, and other cardiovascular risk uh, markers, and you can see where your overall inflammation is. I've alluded to stress a few times. If you are highly stressed all the time, or if you've had trauma in the past and you haven't dealt with it and your body's kind of always in this fight or flight state, if you are chronically using cortisol and you have higher cortisol levels um, that will produce systemic inflammation in your body and that's just not an ideal place to be. So lowering your stress, figuring out what is causing systemic stress, chronic stress. Um, if you lower your inflammation and your cortisol is still high, you got to figure out why it's high because ideally you don't want that systemic inflammation in your body, even if it's from just cortisol. I think there's, you need to reduce your sugar and all the things that Judy is talking about. But then another thing that can work after those things is also fasting. Uh, a 36 hour fast, really even just 24 hours, let your body burn off some of that deep sugar that's in your system that really needs to get burned out. That's been accumulated for years and years of over consuming sugar. Um, and the best and quickest way to do that is through fasting. I don't think it's something you should do from day one. You need to reduce the sugar first, work on your stress first, um, fix some of those other things, but it definitely is needed in order to kind of burn out some of that lifetime of over sugar consumption. Yeah, that was another one I was going to bring up. And then another one is resistance training, right? So as you build up more muscle, your muscles can store some of the excess sugar, even if it's coming from protein, and then increasing sleep, right? So making sure that while you're sleeping, this is where you detox, this is where you store your memory, Um, you just are rejuvenated for the day, your mental health is better, and so that you can start the day um, with less stress, and that you are just able to manage the day with more balanced emotions so that your cortisol doesn't increase and that you can make better choices with food. Sleep is so, so important for that. We have a whole podcast dedicated to sleep. 
It's also why, um, back to the, the muscle and the sugar storage, it's also why you might see a blood sugar spike um, right after you exercise because your body's releasing a lot of that sugar. And so especially if you're new to exercise or you're still trying to burn out some of that deep sugar in your system, or if you've eaten carbs recently, you've got to burn all that sugar back uh, out of your muscles as well. Yeah, and then one last tip um, is... Uh, you can take apple cider vinegar, um, something about the fermentation or something about the vinegar. Um, taking it an hour or two before bed has shown to decrease the dawn effect where your blood sugar is higher in the morning. So it's shown to do that. But I don't know if that's just a Band-Aid, right? So if you had a high sugar day and then you take some apple cider vinegar and then in the morning you're like, look, my blood sugar is not that bad. I mean, is that really beneficial? I don't know. I, that's where I think maybe taking your A1C will be more important. But um, that is one way you can kind of reduce the sugar load um, from a numbers perspective. Yeah, I think the I did that for like the first year that I went low carb because, again, it was kind of the thing back then of having the apple cider vinegar and a little bit of lemon juice and suck it down real quick. Um, but I, I think when you're first starting out and you have so much healing to do, it can be very beneficial. But again, it should not be a forever thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, thank you. I think that answered a lot of the questions that I have. And I feel like now maybe I can confidently speak about some of those things or hopefully it helped to explain to some of you um, a lot of the things that you hear out there a lot of times or when people are talking about insulin resistance or PUFAs, it gives you a little bit more context or understanding of uh, that full picture. Know where you are in your health journey, if it's your child's, if it's your parents, if it's yours. And that's where the PUFAs or not will affect your metabolic health. Everyone should reduce seed oils as much as possible for a variety of reasons. It's not even just the linoleic acid or the polyunsaturated fatty acids. It's also the GMOs, the glyphosate, the, the fact that it's most likely rancid and toxic. And we don't even know because they bleach it. And so it doesn't taste like anything. You just have to figure out your own health state and figure out what makes sense for you. But I hope that this conversation at least explains all of the stuff about the polyunsaturated fatty acids from a very high level and what it means for insulin resistance and what that really means for you now. Cool. Thanks so much for joining today, everybody. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to leave some questions there, topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, and we appreciate all of your support. So thanks for listening and stay healthy. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. 
You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Cut against the grain.